National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Not long ago, we watched as Hurricane Ian swept ashore in southern Florida, and just recently we had uh, actually Hurricane Nicole uh, swept ashore on the other side of Florida. From uh, Hurricane Ian, the damage is still being calculated, but uh, I just read an article a couple days ago that Forbes magazine estimated close to $70 billion in damage, if not more. We've seen an increase in the intensity of storms around the world as the oceans warm. Warmer oceans mean there's more energy to, to power the creation of these storms. As global temperatures continue to rise, we're seeing many other impacts on the climate as well. Today we'll be talking about the national security impacts of climate change, and specifically about sea level rise due to, cli- to a warming climate. Our guest is Professor John Englander. John Englander is an oceanographer, a multi-book author, and an international speaker on climate change and sea level rise, which is often abbreviated as SLR. John is well-traveled with over a dozen expeditions to Greenland and Antarctica, where he has witnessed the effects of melting ice on a warming planet. These expeditions, coupled with his broad background in oceanography and geology, give him a unique perspective, particularly with the grave dangers we face from climate change, from severe weather events, and unstoppable sea level rise. John's recent book, Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level and the Path Forward, published in 2021, is a major new book on the forces driving climate change and sea level rise and a must-read for concerned people of all ages. In 2012, his best-selling first book, High Tide on Main Street, established John as a leading authority on rising sea levels. He translated the latest science from Greenland and Antarctica into practical information for strategic coastal planning and adaptation, and was a pioneer in two concepts. First, that sea level rise is unstoppable because the oceans are already too warm, and the concept of intelligent adaptation, or building with impending climate change and sea level in mind. John Englander is a frequent speaker at national and international conventions, as well as media appearances with MSNBC, Fox Business, ABC, CBS, PBS, The Weather Channel, CCTV in China, uh, CBC in Canada, NPR Morning Joe, and Sky News TV in the UK, amongst many others. John Englander is a research fellow at the Institute of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, a fellow of the Institute of Marine Engineering, Science, and Technology, and a fellow of the Explorers Club. In fact, he carried their flag on a diving expedition under the polar ice cap in 1985. John has logged over 5,000 scuba dives and is an instrument-rated multi-engine pilot with over 3,000 logged hours. He's been invited to lecture on sea level rise at the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. He's, le- he's lectured to Congress, and he served as a subject matter expert to senior military leaders and to members of Congress. Professor John Englander, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. And you are uh, where this morning? I'm in Florida, in Boca Raton, about an hour north of Miami. 
So we're, we are finally getting snow here in Minnesota, so I'm a little a little jealous because I'm sure the weather down there is much, much nicer than it is up here. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a very cold 70 degrees Fahrenheit today, yes. <laughs> so, John, let me begin by asking you a little bit more about your background. Uh, what was it that drew you to study oceanography, and what was it that brought you to the study, you know, climate change and sea level rise as part of your research focus? Sure. At the time, it was not clear. It was not an intent when I was a kid, but uh, it all pieces together now as if it was a plan. Back in the 60s, when I was growing up as a teenager, uh, I watched the show uh, Sea Hunt, which was an adventure series about a commercial diver, and it fascinated me. And then when Jacques Cousteau, uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, uh, became a major um, special uh, series back in the 60s and up to early 70s, Many of us were fascinated by by the world of the underwater that he brought to uh, to view, and I became interested in, in snorkeling as a kid uh, when we went to the Caribbean on family vacation. One thing led to another. I got into scuba diving very young, and I became a uh, certified instructor actually when I graduated high school. And so I got into the field of diving at, at a very young age. And uh, when I was in college in Pennsylvania, Dickinson College. Um, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, the closest they had was marine geology, but that piqued my interest. And that led to a course in paleogeology or ancient geology. And there, one of the big features was the ice ages. And I was stunned to learn that ice ages were a repeating pattern that had actually uh, peaked quite, quite recently in uh about 20,000 years ago in geologic time, but that sea level moved up and down 400 feet Mm. with the ice age cycles. And because I was a diver, and in fact, I worked in the Bahamas during college uh, summer summer vacations and uh, uh, even some uh, school breaks, as a diving instructor, I worked in the clear waters, and it just blew my mind to think that sea level could move up and down 400 feet in a regular pattern. And that as recently as... uh, 20,000 years ago, sea level was 400 feet lower. So I had this unique view of the world, both visually because of seeing it in the Bahamas, in the clear, crystal clear water, and then knowing that there was a natural natural cycle of ice ages and sea level changing hundreds of feet. And it was like I'd seen some movie that nobody else had seen. I, I kept trying to imagine what the world would be like. But I knew that it would take thousands of years for change to happen. So the truth is, it was just kind of theoretical until the 1990s when um, we became aware of the threat of climate change. Yeah. Uh, now, I didn't mention uh, in, in my introduction, but you also led the Cousteau Society for a bit, and you actually met and knew Jacques Cousteau. Uh, for, there are those amongst our listeners who might not know him. Uh, could you tell tell our listeners who he was as a, as a marine advocate and, and why he mattered? Sure. Uh, so Jacques-Yves Cousteau uh, invented scuba diving. He and a, a guy, an engineer named Gagnon, uh, Emile Gagnon, literally invented the regulator that any scuba diver still uses today that magic magically takes high pressure air and makes delivers it to us as we needed at ambient pressure. Um, he invented that back in the 1940s, uh, in effect, uh, you know, the era of World War II. Um, and, but he was a very inventive guy and he invented underwater cameras and lots of things and had this sense that we needed to show the world what, what it was like beneath the surface. 
and he he just was both brilliant and inventive and theatrical and he had the idea for you know putting it on tv and writing about it in books and he eventually came up with the calypso a ship that would uh would become th- this iconic um vessel that would carry him to different diving adventures around the world and i think anybody who is probably 50, 40 years or older would have some memory of the Cousteau series because it was one of the most popular shows in the world and um went on for i don't know at least 10 or 15 years and was then picked up by his son jean-michel Cousteau in, in jacques uh, later years back in the 80s when his other son died so uh, anyway, Jacques Cousteau was both invented scuba diving literally and also was the person that globally is responsible for showing uh, the general public what it's like underwater and giving science in an entertaining format. He, he made it interesting to the chagrin of some scientists, by the way. A lot of scientists thought he took too much liberty with making it interesting and entertaining. But Jacques had a, a, a mission to his madness. He... He knew that to keep people's attention, he had to make it theatrical and, and entertaining. Sort of like the David Attenborough of his day. Oh, very much. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, it, it's ironic that I grew up watching him. And then in 1997, I was hosting an event or chairing an event in Florida, and we gave him an award, and he came over to accept it. And unexpectedly, I mean, totally unexpectedly, because I had a big diving business in the Bahamas at the time and and was involved with the diving industry. But he asked me to become CEO, which I couldn't turn down. So I I quickly decided to sell my business interest to a partner and um, uh, tried to fulfill the plans that he and I had. But he died too quickly. He died three months later. So uh, but it was obviously life changing and um, uh, still still guides me in many ways. Yeah, I think it'd be helpful for our for us to go ahead and dive into our subject by framing this sea level uh, rise challenge with a dis- through a discussion on the science of climate change. Uh, can we separate uh, natural historical climate change from what is happening now? Uh, I, I know you give lectures regularly on this. Maybe you could briefly sure. explain how climate change works and how it's impacting the large masses of ice on land as well as sea ice, and and why the sure. distinction between the two is so important. Great. Thank you for the, those prompts. And, and uh, so um, if you look at the Earth's history, it's four and a half billion years. And I, I just round everything off for simplicity. Um, the Earth's changed a lot. There were times when there was lots of ice, times when there was no ice, continents moved and so on. But if we if we take the fairly recent history of the last two and a half million years, the period when we've had repeating ice age cycles, that allows us to put things in perspective. And during that two and a half million years of the Pleistocene, more technically, um, the climate pattern has uh, followed a couple of uh, regular periods. Most most recently for the last million years, about every 100,000 years, we've had what we think of as an ice age. Um, most people know we've had ice ages. They probably don't know they've been repeating or they're that, they're that recent so the last cold spot of the Ice Age cycle from warm to cold was 18 or 20,000 years ago. And at that time, when the ice sheets were much bigger during the cold spot, sea level was 400 feet, 120 meters lower. Obviously, and that's mind-blowing to think of that. The So if we look at this paleo record, as the historic record, 
uh, that we know from geology that climate changed um, with sea level rising up and down 400 feet, 120 meters. Temperatures changed on global average, five degrees Celsius or nine Fahrenheit. And carbon dioxide went up and down from 120, 180 to 280 parts per million. So we can see that as kind of a norm for the last two and a half million years. And climate was changing naturally without human influence. We know from that record, and this is in my books and it's on my website if people want to go and look at the charts. I, we talked about this, that uh, it's the one limitation of radio, of course. But if you just look at the uh, this graph of the last 400,000 years, I usually show uh, to give us a little more detail. So we know that sea level goes up and down 400 feet on a regular pattern. The reason it appeared stable to us was that for the last 6,000 years, we were at the turning point between the up phase of sea level rising 400 feet and should have been entering the down phase over the next 80,000 years as we approach the next ice age of sea level falling 400 feet. But we can now see quite clearly that compared to that natural history of um, two and a half million years of, of that repeating pattern, we've now broken out of that pattern. And it's quite clear because as was predicted 100 years ago, carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere and would warm the planet and would cause the ice sheets on land to melt further than normal and raise sea level. And in fact, that's what we're seeing. The reason, uh, so what's happening now is we've broken out of the ice age cycle, basically. Okay. We would have been entering the 80,000-year cooling phase when the sea level would have been falling. Now we're in a super warming period, and the three parameters always move together over long periods of time. That's sea level, global average temperature, and the carbon dioxide level. Now, it can take decades or even centuries for equilibrium to be reached, because right now, carbon dioxide is at 420 parts per million, as some people would be aware. Some people think that we should have a goal of getting it back down to 350 parts per million. Hence, one one organization is called 350.org. The historic range was 180 to 280. So we can see that we're 50% higher than we should be. If the normal range of carbon dioxide was 180 to 280, and we're now at 420 we are fifty percent above the normal range of the last two and a half million years. So, so does fact, that mean even now, at three hundred and fifty parts per million, we're still warming the the climate, right? Warming the environment. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And to your other point, that you, uh, so we think of ice on uh, in in the ocean, icebergs. Typically, we tend to visualize them because they're they're very visual and artistic and so on and threatening. Um, but floating ice is like ice cubes in a glass. Once it's floating, as it melts, it doesn't change the liquid level. And that's a simple phenomenon that, that seems strange, but it's because ice gets a little less dense than water. And so just like a piece of wood, a log floating in the water, it's a little bit above the surface because it's less dense than water. As ice melts, it compacts in effect. So once ice is floating, like in the form of icebergs or these giant ice shelves, once the ice has put its weight in the ocean, it's now had its impact on sea level. The effect on sea level comes from the ice on land in one of two forms, actually three forms. One is that as the ice sheet or glaciers 
come to the water's edge and break off or calve into a new iceberg, that's like adding an ice cube to a glass of water and, of course, raises the water level. As the ice on land melts and the water runs into the sea from the glaciers on Greenland or Antarctica primarily, uh, that, that, of course, raises the water level, just like pouring more water in our virtual glass. And the third thing that changes global sea level is that as the oceans warm, they expand slightly. Mm-hmm. So over the last century, out of the roughly 10 inches of sea level rise, but it's been accelerating, but over the average over the last century, um, we've had about 10 inches of sea level rise so far in the last century. And about half of that's come from thermal expansion of seawater. But what's happening now is decade by decade with the warming and the melting of the ice on Greenland and Antarctica, that uh, that's going to dwarf the effects of thermal expansion. Hmm. So we can effectively say that the real issue for global sea level change in the coming century is the melting of the two ice sheets on Antarctica and Greenland. And um, the numbers are shocking, but if they were both melted, if we allowed them to melt, if we allowed the warming to continue and uh, the global average temperature to rise and those two ice sheets melted, sea level would be 212 feet higher, Mm. 65 meters above present, (laughs) which is, of course, just like a science fiction movie, you know, to to imagine Uh, the the world will be changed. And in fact, there probably wouldn't be life as we know it if the world was that warm. But um, at the simple level, we are outside the normal boundaries that have existed for the last two and a half million years of the ice ages. We've actually broken out of the natural cycle. We are now in a new cycle caused by the warming gases of, of carbon dioxide and methane and the nitrous oxide and the 30 some greenhouse gases that are warming the planet as was predicted a hundred years ago. Yeah. So uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is John Englander, and we're discussing the national security impacts of sea level rise for the United States. Hey, we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which holds events throughout the year. Learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Now, uh, Professor Englander, we just started talking about uh, sort of that lubrication uh, factor that happens to the uh, the glaciers on uh, and principally uh, Greenland and Antarctica and uh, Antarctica, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, but they happen to the glaciers all around the world uh, as as the warming is continuing. Uh, now, you just had uh, recently, I guess this past summer, uh, the columnist uh, Brett Stevens joined you on a trip up to uh, Greenland. Uh, can you talk right. a little bit about uh, that visit to Greenland and and what uh, Brett Stevens witnessed? And I know that he talked about you. In the article that he wrote in, the, I guess it was the New York Times just a couple weeks ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on that visit? Sure. Um, so Brett is a conservative co- columnist, very well known. Uh, he's a prominent columnist. Was hired from the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, the New York Times, several years ago. And his first op-ed um, kind of challenged the thesis of climate change. He didn't deny it was happening, but he thought maybe the climate community was overreacting. And uh, many people in the climate community thought the Times should not have a climate skeptic of any degree <laughs> on the editorial page and, and petitioned to get him fired. And uh, I signed the petition, and um, but the Times uh, stuck with him and said, give him a chance. Anyway, I started reading him over the years and enjoyed his writing, actually. Um, a very uh, fresh thinker. And uh, on a trip to New York to give a talk somewhere else, I, uh, I reached out to him. I asked if he'd be willing to meet. 
And he said, sure, meet me at the Times tomorrow at noon up in his office. And I, I did. And we uh, spent an hour together and he started to trust me quite clearly and and uh, asked me some penetrating questions. And as I was leaving, I said, you know, you should come to Greenland on one of my fact-finding trips. And anyway, long story short, he agreed that was three years ago, but the trips were canceled for a few years by COVID. But he came in August and uh, wrote this huge uh, essay, over 6,000 words, that appeared a couple of weeks ago, as you said. I think it was right at the end of October. Um, and it's searchable by anybody who wants to read the New York Times. It's also on my website, my blog, johnenglander.net. Um, but anyway, make a long story short, Brett is now a convert. He can see that with the clarity of the size of the Greenland ice sheet and the glaciers and the melting and talking to their experts and and uh, locals up in Greenland that there's no doubt of where the trend is headed and the threat of the Greenland ice sheet melting is of such impact, particularly from a national security standpoint, but to everybody on island nations all over the world, that it really deserves to be looked at um, with special focus and separate from the effort, even the efforts to slow the warming, because once you look at the numbers, we've already, the, the heat's already stored in the ocean. Even if we stopped emissions today, even if the whole world went to solar panels and electric cars today, which is not possible, but let's say we had free nuclear fusion or some power, even then, the oceans have stored so much heat that the ice sheets are going to melt for centuries. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so we've got to do three things. I like to say, as, as you, I know, read my book, I'd say the climate change really should be broken into three things. One is to be more sustainable, particularly with energy, to find ways to power the planet without um, adding to the warming. That's important. Two is to start to design with resiliency to plan for the weather we're seeing now from strange hurricanes to more wildfires, to more droughts, to more record rainfall. All the things we're seeing in the headlines all over the world today that are national security threats, yeah. you know, from the floods in Pakistan a few weeks ago, which were uh, just devastating and beyond record, to, to floods all over the world, to record droughts that are hurting agriculture and everything else, which are having effects on migrations and, and uh, refugees, etc. So being resilient to the weather we're having this year, okay, and next year, that's resiliency. So we have sustainability, resiliency, and then we have to adapt. Because it's very clear now that sea level will go back to its former heights, 10 or 20 feet higher eventually. And that's such a, a mind-boggling concept that sea level will be that much higher permanently, that we need to start planning now to adapt to a world that we can't imagine. Because for 6,000 years, sea level has been stable. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> what, what else is happening in the oceans today? Uh, due to climate change? What what impacts are we seeing in the oceans <clears throat> due to the ocean's ability to serve as a carbon sink for, for a warming atmosphere? Excuse me. Got a little bit of a frog in my throat this morning. I, must be the, 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 you know, the, the cold and flu season starting up or something. Sure, no problem. Um, so the oceans are being affected in a number of ways. First of all, uh, as they warm again, the, the, heat, the heat is what fuels the storms, like particularly hurricanes and tornadoes, and and uh, so as you as you store more heat in the ocean, and ninety three percent of the excess heat that's being trapped in the atmosphere by greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, etc., ninety three percent is stored in the ocean, and so the ocean is is this big heat battery, 
and and I talk about it like like warming an out you know when an outdoor swimming pool warms in the summer and then in the fall when outdoor temperatures cool but the 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 pool retains its heat for quite a while days or weeks even well because of the size of the ocean it retains its heat for for years or decades and uh, we've stored this heat in the ocean and it means that the effect to melt the ice on Greenland and Antarctica will continue now I mentioned Antarctica and Greenland or we both did John because. 98% of the ice on land is in those two places. Mm. We think of glaciers and uh, snow-covered mountains from Alaska to the Alps to the Himalayas and so on, and they're all relevant, but all of them together add up to less than 2% of the ice on land wow. and therefore potential sea level rise. And I, and I think I've, I've seen on some of those uh, nature shows, so that, some of that ice on uh, Greenland and Antarctica it's like a mile thick, right? A mile deep? Exactly. It's, in fact, it goes up to two miles. Antarctica is, in some places, two to three miles. Oh, my but, gosh. But uh, average is probably closer to two. Greenland probably averages a little over a mile thick. So think of that, 6,000 feet, you know, of average ice sheet covering 80% of <laughs> Greenland. And Greenland is bigger than most people can comprehend. It's the size of the eastern United States. It's it's about it's 1,500 miles north-south, or kilometers, I guess, 1,200 miles uh, north, south, and about uh, 800 miles east, west, covered by a mile of ice, as you say, and it is melting faster and faster year by year. So, as these uh, obviously, we're having an impact on ocean currents. The heating of the of the yes. ocean changes the currents. Uh, what do oceanographers like you think will happen as the oceans continue to warm? Uh, the impacts with these currents. Does the jet stream change? The major deep water currents, how, how might they be impacted? What kind of third and fourth order impacts might we see on, on the web of life in the oceans? I mean, could we see fisheries collapse entirely with this uh, change? Uh, major die-off of sea mammals and marine birds? I mean, what, what are we looking at here? You're asking great questions. We're probably going to have to do another program to, to follow all of those threads, John. And we should we we can talk about that. But but to try and hone in on some of those great points. So as the oceans warm, the currents change, and the currents change will affect storms and things like that. But we're also seeing effects on fisheries, as you say, not only because of the temperature change. So the 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 main lobsters are 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 moving north, okay, and uh, in different places we're seeing different changes to fisheries. Uh, some fisheries like squid are actually proliferating in, in, in the current uh, changing temperatures from the warming oceans. But um, the pH of the ocean, I think you mentioned, is really important. The acidity, the oceans are slightly alkaline. Eight, they were 8.15, now they're down to about 8.1, but it's a logarithmic scale, so that's a huge difference. And the changing acidity level, or going from alkaline to more acidic not we're not acid yet but we're less less alkaline i guess would be the proper way to say it we think of it as ocean acidification that's huge because from coral reefs to the mollusks the clams the oysters and so on they're able to form their exoskeletons and shells uh and the coral reefs because of the chemical uh property of of laying down calcium um as part of either the biologic process of a mollusk or, or actually the, the uh, secretions of, of coral uh, animals in a, in a reef, those are slowing down because they can't happen if the water is uh, more acidic mm. or less alkaline. They require a certain pH, just like 
just like, uh, you know, growing roses or things like that require a certain pH of the soils. Well, in the oceans, it's not only the biologic part, but there's actually a chemical reaction to form an exoskeleton or a shell. And it's already been seen in the Pacific Northwest that because of the increased uh, acidity or decreased alkalinity, however you want to say it, um, that the little spat, the oyster shells are not forming. So there's more focus on doing it in um, in habitats, you know, or, or, or controlled spaces, but it's having huge impacts. So just one example of, of a change in pH, but it will affect fisheries, the entire food chain. And then another thing, um, as Greenland melts, for example, and huge amounts of fresh water from the ice sheet pour into the North Atlantic, that's affecting the ocean conveyor belt, we call it, or the AMOC more technically, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Current <laughs> that we often think of as the Gulf Stream, if you will, but turned into a, a global conveyor belt. And the Gulf Stream is the part from the Gulf of Mexico around Florida that goes up to uh, Greenland and then over toward Europe and brings that warm water. Well, that's slowing too because of the amount of fresh water that's entering the ocean off of Greenland. So all of these things are connected, just as your great question suggested. Uh, we're going to take a just a brief uh, break for uh, our sponsor. Uh, just a moment. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back. Uh, uh, Professor John Engler, let's get into the topic of sea level rise specifically uh, for today. Uh, based on all the scientific data, what kind of sea level rise are we looking at over the coming years? And, and uh, maybe we can break it down into the kind of the near-term, mid-term, and long-term time frames. Uh, maybe you could sort of frame that for us a little bit. No, that's a great framing, John. I, 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 that's the one I use, short, medium, and long term. We tend to do it in lots of planning, whether it be for our own, uh, you, you know, our kids' education, our retirement, whatever. We think short, medium, and long term. So let me pick up on that cue. Let's say that short term is the next decade, which is a, you know, long to most people, but it was very short in terms of planning and including national security. Longer term, the midterm would be, um, 30 to 50 years, let's say. So well into the second half of this century. And long-term, from my standpoint, is 100 years or longer. That seems like long, uh, very long to most people. But when you think about infrastructure, um, even national security from where are the countries, where are the fueling bases like Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, that's important for uh, for the Navy, you know, uh, those places that would be underwater within 100 years. We need to start thinking now. And it's not just the... Uh, uh, when Miami goes underwater, the Florida Keys, but it's every coastal city in the world, uh, from Boston to San Diego and from uh, Copenhagen to uh, Shanghai. Okay, it's tens of thousands of cities in 140 nations that are bordered by the ocean. They're all going to be changed. And what we're looking at now of like a quarter of an inch a year sea level rise but accumulating is small stuff, frankly. We need to start thinking differently um, so to answer your question directly, in the next decade, we're going to have probably a few inches of sea level rise. Not that significant, but it's additive, of course, and cumulative. 
By mid-century, even according to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, our official agency in the U.S., says that plan on 10 to 12 inches of sea level rise, pretty much no matter what we do with climate change at this point, because that's pretty much locked in because of the heat in the ocean. It Mm. could be worse. But by the end of the century, they say we could have two to seven feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And if you look at 100 years to the year 2122, we're looking at, you know, uh, very conceivably 10 to 15 feet of sea level rise. So kind of mind-boggling level. So if we think a foot within um, by mid-century and by end of century, uh, five to 10 feet is probably very simplistic numbers to help people think ahead. Sea level won't rise much in the next year. That's the other, that's the other side of the coin. Anybody who's fearful that, you know, their coastal house will be inundated by 10 feet of sea level rise in a decade, I would have to say that's totally misplaced. There's no way for Antarctica and Greenland to melt that quickly. So let me ask you this, uh, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, misstate this, but scientists generally tend to be kind of conservative in their estimates, right? Because they have to rely on data. The data that's available tells us this is where we're at. We do know that there's like a feedback loop taking place in the Arctic Ocean and that the speed with which uh, multi-year ice is returning is actually uh, being reduced dramatically. There's less and less multi-year ice every year because of that feedback loop. Could could something like that happen to the the masses of ice that are on land at Greenland and Antarctica? Could they be warmed quicker? I mean, the data tells us what what we're looking at, but is there a possibility that as we add more and more uh, heat-trapping carbon dioxide and, and eventually maybe methane to the atmosphere, could could this could it speed up the melting of the of the uh, ice on land and then increase the speed with which sea level might rise? I'm I'm a career intel officer, so I'm always looking at the worst case scenario. <laughs> no, that's that's great. I know I'm really glad we're connecting here and to your audience. This is really important because I find that national security and intel uh, people um, do are able to look over the horizon better and uh, think strategically. They they don't have to budget or pay for pay for the solution or the adaptation <laughs> that they, um, which is important because most people are are constrained by what they think the effect is going to be on them or their company or their city, okay? Whereas in national security, you look strategically and you can think 10, 20, 30 years out, you know, look around the corners. And so that's why I'm excited to to talk to you and your audience today. Um, Back to your question. So the ice on Greenland is collapsing visibly year by year, both by melting at the surface by rivers of meltwater in the ice now and underneath the glaciers getting to the sea. Um, and the, the collapse is happening, uh, you know, tens of feet or hundreds of feet a year in the vertical, thousands of feet of thickness there. The sea is different, as you just suggested. Uh, ocean ice, even the sea ice around the North Pole, you know, most people think that the North Pole is like Greenland and Antarctica, but but as you know, and the maps like, uh, show quite clearly the North Pole is just is is ocean now yeah. in our uh, decades ago it was it was frozen year round now it's it's thawed more often than it's not and as you say the multi-year ice the old three meters or 10 feet thick ice that we had to drill through to go diving under the Arctic ice cap in uh, 1985 as you mentioned in your intro um, that hardly exists anymore 
Now there's uh, there's some ice building up during the winter, and it may get to be a foot or two, and uh, there may be a few odd pieces that are thicker than that. But the ice is quite thin because the ocean heat, um, water holds 800 times more energy per unit of volume than than air. So even it takes a lot more energy to to warm ocean a cup of seawater um, or, or a cubic foot, you know, than than air because of the density. So it takes a lot of heat to change the ocean, but the converse is true. As we warm the oceans and that heat energy is there, that warmer ocean means that the ice is going to melt quicker each summer and it's going to form more slowly than when the oceans and atmosphere were much colder. Um, So I hope that answers. Yep. Yep. Uh, So, We've mostly been talking about the impacts of uh, heating the atmosphere from carbon dioxide. Uh, what about methane as a as a greenhouse gas? Uh, we know there's a lot of methane trapped in the high north in the permafrost and uh, maybe even below the Arctic Ocean. Uh, what kind of impact do you think that might have on uh, warming the climate even faster? If that's oh, great question. And methane is the ticking time bomb, and we don't know when it's going to go off. But you you alluded to several important points so methane is not maybe under the arctic it's we know it's under the (laughs) arctic seabed it's in a slush called methane clathrates or hydrates and it's it's like a a snow cone of uh if you would a slushy solid methane um that's coming up uh in several forms as bubbles in the sea off siberia we can see it looks like a carbonated beverage um there's places in lakes in the north where uh, during the winter when the when the lake is frozen and it put a hole in the in the ice uh they can actually ignite <laughs> the methane there's some places up in i think actually in minnesota that uh but uh, in scandinavia where they, some clever people have found a way to trap the methane and actually use it for for uh heating in their homes and stuff like that um a little risky perhaps <laughs> but the methane is really powerful it's hundreds of times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide there's, and it's been erroneously reported in many ways as only 20 times more potent. But um, it, it degrades pretty quickly. But when it comes out of the ground or leaks out of natural gas operations, fracking operations, however it gets in the atmosphere, it's about 200 times more potent per volume than carbon dioxide. Mm. Really potent as a greenhouse gas. Now, it does have a half-life of about seven years. So over 20 years or 100 years, it degrade, it, it um, reduces significantly. But it's huge. And the problem is it's coming out of the seabed as the oceans warm by this melting of that slush at the bottom of the seabed. It's also stored in the permafrost. And there's places in Siberia where it's been... Uh, now we have photographs of it where there's been methane explosions because the meth- enough methane is coming as the, as the permafrost um thaws that uh you can get an aggregation and under the right conditions a spark of some sort that uh um you know you literally get an explosion and, and giant craters are, are forming across siberia uh and in places in the arctic and uh so methane is increasing greatly it we don't pay it as much attention as carbon dioxide because most methane in the air is beyond our control. It's happening as the soils melt or warm or thaw, I should say, permafrost, as the seabed warms and releases the, the methane in the seabed, etc. So we don't have a direct control on that. It's an indirect effect, as you say, a third order effect 
of a warming planet and melting ice and, and warming oceans. Um, but uh, it, it is the place, I guess, humans affect methane, which is natural gas effectively, is that as we develop more natural gas for uh, to power our vehicles, and, you know, there's now we have it like gas stations where you can pump in uh, uh, natural gas for certain industrial vehicles and stuff. So there's leakage both at at the point of transferring it, putting it in the, in the vehicles, but also at the drill sites, at the wells where we're drilling for, for natural gas, uh, particularly through the fracking operations. A lot of methane or natural gas escapes into the atmosphere. Hmm. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor John Englander, and we're discussing the national security impacts of sea level rise for the United States. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Professor, I want to switch over to uh, to your latest book, Moving to Higher Ground, and then we'll transition into uh, one of the chapters that you talk about in there, that uh, the DOD chapter, Time for Extreme Scenarios, and some of the other serious national security ramifications of climate change. Uh, what was the catalyst for you to write this, uh, this second book, Moving to Higher Ground? Um. My first book was 2012, uh, High Tide on Main Street, and that was my kind of foray it, into uh, uh, t- putting together a, a big picture case on sea level rise. And uh, I, I'd not been a PhD, and I not never written a book, and I really did it kind of as a thesis to just see what if I could put a case together uh, by pulling together, you know, everything I saw that was relevant, and. Um, Putting it out there, knowing that I'd probably be attacked because it was about climate change and because <laughs> even in scientific circles, there's generally disagreement and bantering between who's, you know, more correct. And the book um, was remarkably well received. In fact, essentially without criticism. <laughs> and it, it it got me speaking opportunities, as you mentioned, uh, from the U.S. Naval Academy to uh, um, Congress um, and many other uh, great opportunities to explain a picture of sea level rise and uh, i've given over a hundred lectures well over a hundred lectures and in addition to the media appearances that you cited um and it was just having done that since 2012 you know for almost a decade i just i had greater clarity i learned a lot and from my lectures and interviews and responses and so i grew in that decade and um from the publication of that first book I've worked on nothing else. So sea level became my thing in 2012. And uh, to come out with the second book nine years later was just an opportunity to both um, update the story based upon the latest science, to take into account the feedback I'd gotten, also to talk more in the third part of the book, the third and last part of the book, about the political, social, economic uh, aspects of change and why we are delaying um uh, reacting to the threat of sea level rise and why that's uh, counterproductive. I make the argument that the sooner we start thinking about sea level rise, the better, because buildings and infrastructure and all the national security issues um, really, you know, we need to think of as, again, short, medium, long term, the 10 years, 30 years and 100 years, because building cities and infrastructure and nations and national security issues even as I said, I think earlier, uh, you know, fueling stations in the Indian Ocean, like Diego, Diego Garcia, um, but military bases all over the world, many of them on the coast. Um, we need to think 
really uh, creatively about what the world will look like in the face of unstoppable sea level rise, yeah. which, um, you know, it, as you know, it is my thesis is that not thesis. In fact, I've made the argument. I've not been refuted that given that the oceans are now a degree Celsius warmer uh, than they were, and we're arguing about whether we can stop it at another degree or not, uh, or the atmosphere, I should say, um, the oceans are warmer the, as evidenced by the atmosphere by the atmosphere being one degree Celsius warmer now. And we're trying to keep the warming to two degrees, as we know from the public debate. But given that warmer world, both in the atmosphere and with most of the heat stored in the ocean, uh, it's now um, inarguable that ice on Greenland and Antarctica are not going to continue to melt, raising global sea levels. And we get a really good marker by looking back 122,000 years at the last warm cycle or warm spot in the ice age cycle, I should say, when sea level reached 25 feet above present, mm. that was without human impact. So that that really should be our marker <laughs> to say, even if we could stop the greenhouse gas emissions and stop the methane coming out of the ground, even if we were lucky at the current temperature level and carbon dioxide level, we can learn from history 122,000 years ago when sea level was 25 feet higher. It's almost unimaginable. Yeah. But that should be what guides us thinking ahead several centuries and future generations and national security, international security, indeed. Uh, so, Professor Engler, do you have a section in that book, Moving to Higher Ground, uh, that talks about the D Department of Defense considerations? You title that section time for extreme scenarios. And, and you even cite in the book the finding that because the actual rate of sea level rise cannot be precisely predicted, uh, we need to look at a wide range of scenarios that could occur. Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about that. I, I think DOD, I mean, for my career, even when I was a junior officer back in the early 90s as an intel officer, we started reading about this idea of climate change. Uh, and what the potential might be for uh, changing climate on the planet, uh, stabilized, uh, you know, destabilization of governments and things like that. We have seen already, and you mentioned it a little while ago, uh, some of the impacts from these uh, really strong storms that are happening uh, somewhat more frequently now, and, and the droughts as well. Uh, massive flooding across all of Pakistan. Pakistan, of course, has has, has had some challenges as a nation uh, in government stability, and they are nuclear-armed. Uh, so there's a national security uh, ramification right there based on uh, destabilizing the country further with the massive flooding. We see in the Horn of Africa uh, the worst droughts they've had in probably 50 years, four straight years of uh, uh, sub uh, substandard or subnormal uh, uh, rainfall. Uh, so they have just a massive drought. Uh, we have climate refugees, as we've referred to it now, where you have these major droughts and famine, animals and plants just can't survive in those environments. Humans have the ability to get up and move. So you have, uh, uh, you know, refugees from these uh, these impacts, these climate-linked uh, impacts. Uh, what, what impacts do you anticipate from sea level rise specifically with regard to national security concerns? Uh, I mean, is it – well, I'll leave it to you. I mean, you've briefed uh, DOD. You've briefed Congress. What are the things that they ask you when you're when you're telling them about this inevitable, uh, unstoppable sea level rise that we have coming? 
Well, you know, frankly, they struggle, okay, as we all do, and that's not an insult at all, okay? The, the, the idea that thinking of sea level, you know, is inches higher this decade, but a foot higher mid-century and five or ten feet higher in a hundred years is kind of unprecedented and mind-boggling, and we don't tend to think that long, but... Um, the, well, it's, it's never happened in human society. <laughs> that's right. right. After six weeks, sea levels, sea level, remember... Sea level and the shoreline are are two sides of the same coin. As the sea goes up and down foot or tens of feet or hundreds of feet, the shoreline moves in in or out maybe 300 times that is kind of the, the rough global average ratio. So if sea level goes up 10 feet higher, the shoreline might move inland 3,000 feet. Mm-hmm. In flat areas like South Florida or Bangladesh or Vietnam, it would be even more because the gradient is, is lower, the, the profile, okay? Um so it varies in different places. But we've had a vision of the world and nations and oceans and ocean currents. We've had that as a as a fairly static picture um, because for 6,000 years it hasn't changed much. And now it's going to change quickly. And if we look back 11,000 years ago, during the last time that the ice melted quickly by the natural cycle and sea level rose quickly, sea level was rising 15 feet a century. Ooh. 11,000 years ago. And it did that for four centuries. The the ratio, if you look at my graphs in my book, um, again, sea level moves up and down in a regular pattern, 400 feet, 120 meters. When temperature goes, average global temperature goes up or down five degrees Celsius or uh, nine Fahrenheit. And if you divide the, the height of sea level change by the temperature change, it comes out to 20 meters per degree Celsius. We've already warmed one degree Celsius. We have, in effect, 20 meters, about 65 feet of sea rise, what we call in the pipeline. It's committed. Mm-hmm. We just don't know how long it'll take to melt that much ice. But that should that has kind of a, you know, just a a deer in the headlights type effect on us when you start thinking about 65 feet of sea level rise. Now, if it happens over 3,000 years, we can probably adapt. If it happens over 300 years, we can adapt, but with difficulty. If it happens over the next 100 years um, or, you know, shorter, it it's becomes catastrophe, of course, because it's going to change everything from not only military bases, from every Navy base, of course, and Coast Guard base, <clears throat> but many airports for safety are, are located, you know, on... Uh, near the water or nu- uh, just, nuclear reactors right all of those things okay but also national security think of think of immigration we're struggling with a million refugees a year right now in different parts of the world it's been estimated even by the economist magazine a very uh, respected magazine that this century we could have 500 million people displaced by rising waters mm. and flooding and it's mind-boggling and so I, I love the fact that you representing the national security sector, John, or your audience, I should say, um, you know, are getting tuned into this and interested because I really do think you can be the leaders. Um, it's it's the one sector that people will tend to listen to regardless of politics and that that, uh, you know, takes a long term perspective and isn't seen as trying to make money on it or uh, worried about the cost, but looks at kind of the intellectual and scientific argument. Um, so that's why this is such an important discussion to start with your uh, with your program. Yeah, you, you, you've mentioned the naval bases, uh, Norfolk Naval Base, which is the largest naval base in the world. 
<clears throat> has already been suffering from from sea level rise, uh, and because sea level rise has gone up just a little bit, the tides uh, have actually been impacting uh, Norfolk Naval Base and are flooding areas of Norfolk Naval Base. Uh, the Naval Academy, where you talked, uh, gave that lecture uh, a few years back. Uh, they have been dealing with uh, flooding on a regular basis now because of rising uh, sea level. So these things are going to happen. So I guess... Uh, if we worst case scenario, we look for uh, wherever the uh, uh, the high ground is, uh, you know, 235 feet above sea level, and that's where you buy a home today. Uh, if you want to will it to your grandchildren so that they'll have beachfront property here in the United States, is that uh, kind of what we're looking at? Well, I guess so, but of course, tongue in cheek, because uh, the truth is that we melt all the ice on the planet and get 212 feet of sea rise. I don't think humans will be alive. Okay, yeah, too I, hot. I think the ecosystem would have changed enough. Hopefully, in the next uh, decades or centuries, we will get this under control and use technology <laughs> to make our energy. But the sea level is not going to go back down because for the ice sheets to expand, the glaciers to grow, uh, you have to get back down to a, a much cooler planet, several degrees colder for the uh, the growth of the glaciers and ice sheets. So we have to do both. We have to work to slow the warming and work on the technology aspects to make our power without warming the planet. We have to prepare for uh, the kind of things that are happening now in the headlines uh, year by year and getting worse. That's resiliency to me. And then, as I said earlier, we have to begin adapting and thinking differently. What do we do when sea level is 10 feet higher or 20 feet higher or 30 feet higher? We actually have centuries to start planning that. Not, but no time to waste. Yeah. So, uh, John Engler, we have just about uh, six minutes left, and I always like to give my guests uh, the last word. Uh, what else would you like people to know about this issue of sea level rise? Anything we haven't touched on yet today? Uh, perhaps something you'd like to reiterate for people who may have joined us later in the show? Sure. Thanks, John. Um, so the first is, again, that sea level change with climate change and there was natural climate change we think of it as the ice age cycles we've had ice ages for two and a half million years actually 2.58 million years we know quite precisely we reached into the holocene about eleven thousand years ago stabilizing climate that was kind of the end of the warming phase and entering the next cooling phase um we uh for six thousand years effectively sea level has been fairly stable within several feet but that was after rising 400 feet over the last um, um, 20,000 years. Not that long in human history, or in the planet's history, certainly. So sea level really should be the wake-up call, because it defines the continents, it defines the nations. There are 140 nations and tens of thousands of cities that are bordered by the ocean that will change as sea level rises. We are past the point of stopping sea level rise because we've stored so much excess heat in the ocean. Um, I know one thing we talked about, there's an example in my book. It's been calculated that the heat we've stored in the ocean is the equivalent of adding five atomic bombs of energy every second, 24 hours, 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. That's the amount of heat we're storing and, and capturing in the sea because of the elevated greenhouse gases. So we need to talk about this in plain English not just leave this to the scientists. This is a matter for architects and engineers and urban planners and the financial community and the, and the legal community to think about a different world. And this is as fundamental as ice melts at 32 degrees. Forget the politics. We do know that when we go to, the, to a marina or a harbor and we see that vessels go up and down on the wharf, whether they be cargo ships or pleasure boats or sailboats or, or kayaks or whatever, 
where the beaches change uh, nature as tides go up and down two or three feet, which is the global typical tidal change every day, two or three feet. Here we're talking about 10 feet or more. And so imagine that at least three times what we see in a daily tide cycle. And uh, it's scary. It's unprecedented. But so are a lot of things in the world. And you people in national security know that better than anybody. That doesn't mean it's a reason not to think about them. Quite the opposite. We should both embrace it, understand it, and plan for it. And um, I, I think that sea level needs to be clearly thought of as the third level of of effect, if you will, from climate change. The climate change happened naturally by the ice age cycles. We didn't even talk about that. That's because of the changing orbit around the sun. I explained that in the book, as you know. Um, So ice age cycles were a natural phenomenon of the changing elliptical orbit around the sun. We've now changed things by changing the atmosphere. So we have the fundamental average temperature in the world, which is changing. It changes the ocean currents, as we've said. It will melt the ice sheets. Sea level will rise. It will move the coastlines. Those are all things that most people don't want to think about, either and they don't know or they just don't want to know. They have cognitive dissonance. But it's people working in national security that are trained and empowered and have the background to process that kind of information and think about it and influence the wider debate in our communities and nations around the world. That's a great point. Uh, just to follow up on that, uh, one last point, uh, Professor John Engleter. Uh, for, for the national security professionals, we know that something like 80% of the global population lives within a 100 miles of a coastline around the planet. Uh, so if we're talking uh, massive changes to the coastlines, we're talking significant changes to where people can live and and make a living and 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 whatnot so there will be impacts over the course of the next century and beyond uh, and you've definitely highlighted that for us uh, sadly we've come to the end of today's edition of national security this week john englander thank you so much for joining us today please remind us one more time what's the title of your most recent book it's moving to higher ground rising sea level and the path forward and uh I've got a website and occasional blogs, johnenglander.net, and uh, also welcome opportunities to be a keynote. Uh, so if I can uh, help your audience get the word out, I'd be glad to. So, John, we, we concentrated our show today on sort of the national security ramifications of uh, of the rising sea level, uh, the unstoppable uh, rising sea level that's coming our way. Uh, would you be willing to join us on public policy this week, maybe around mid-December, to have another conversation about specific uh, public policy impacts from rising sea level? Absolutely, John. It'd be my pleasure. All right. I'll get that organized, and so our audience can can uh, tune in uh, maybe mid-December time frame, and we'll, have a, we'll continue this conversation uh, with you. Great. I look forward to it. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. 